According to St. Matthew, in the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. And when they had heard the king, they set out. There ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. And on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, Having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the gospel of the Lord. We three kings of Orient are. <laughs> well, I mean, they're... There are kings in this passage, but the three magi aren't them. There are two kings in Matthew's gospel this morning. There's Herod and Jesus. But generally speaking, we're used to approaching this passage through the characters of the magi, aren't we? I mean, smart folks who travel from the east just to lay eyes on the little baby, whom they've somehow gotten wind of. There's quite a story of faith on the move based on very little evidence that would hold up in court. But they come. They see the star and they load up the minivan for a road trip to behold the glory of the Lord. And it's no small trip either. I mean, they come from the, from the east, which is old-timey shorthand for places like Persia and Babylon, or as we call them today, Iran and parts of Iraq. So, as a side note, just for the folks nowadays who are so afraid of, you know, those people, the ones so many are sure are hiding behind their 
illicit stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction, the, the, the ones that folks, people stare at on the airplane, certain that there's a suicide vest underneath an otherwise unremarkable car, uh, maroon turtleneck. For those who live in such fear of the other, it must be especially irksome to realize that, at least according to Matthew, the ancestors of Ayatollah Khomeini and Saddam Hussein are the first ones to recognize Jesus for who he is. It's probably a good thing to remember the next time somebody starts spouting off about how godless people from that part of the world are and why we shouldn't allow them into our country and, uh, until they promise to believe all the same things that we believe. <laughs> See, the Magi saw the light of the star and they come to behold the glory of the Lord. Now, it seems pretty clear that Matthew is subtly recalling our lectionary reading from Isaiah this morning. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will raise upon you, and God's glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring gold and frankincense, and they shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. Now, in fact, Isaiah's recounting of the kings being drawn to the brightness of God's glory is probably where we got the whole we three kings thing in the first place. See, Isaiah's announcement originally comes to a beleaguered people who've been released by the Persians from captivity in Babylon. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the same Persia and Babylon from which the Magi are thought to have come. Only to find upon their return that their homeland is wrecked, worse than the family room on Christmas morning. Now, Isaiah offers a word of reassurance to a people who are trying to figure out why they shouldn't just give up and move down to Florida. You know, the returning exiles felt like they'd been abandoned when they were forced into refugee camps in Babylon. But then, wonder of wonders, they got, God, uh, they got to come home from Jerusalem. And that was great. But once they sort of limped up the driveway and saw the mess, then they, 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 they felt abandoned all over again. But Isaiah says, don't worry. I, I, I know it looks bad right now, but things are going to change. God is going to make something of this dump once again. Just, just you wait. And when that happens, well, the people will flock from all over to see the light that shines forth from you. Even kings will drop their golf clubs on the 17th fairway, get in their private jets, and make their way to the middle of nowhere to behold the glory of the Lord shining upon you. Jerusalem will be a beacon of hope for the world. Now, all of that triumphal light shining and glory beholding and king visiting and present bearing are, are the backdrop for Matthew's story about the coming of the Magi to see Jesus. The Magi apparently know this prophecy from Isaiah, the one about light shining forth from Jerusalem, and so that's where they go. They go to Jerusalem. But as Walter Brueggemann has pointed out, the, the Magi missed by nine miles. Jesus isn't in Jerusalem, Isaiah's city of light. He's in Bethlehem. 
which is a little backwater town nine miles up the road from Jerusalem. So even though Matthew trades on it as a backdrop, he doesn't explicitly mention Isaiah's word of triumph, does he? No, and instead, Matthew looks to another prophet, the prophet Micah. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem. <laughs> That's a little nowhere place, only really a truck stop slash convenience store and a, and, a, and a flea bag motel, really. And you can understand why the Magi might make the mistake of heading first to Jerusalem, right? I mean, if you're looking for the king, you don't, you, you go to the city, don't you? you? You don't waste time stomping around out in the countryside where you're more than likely to bump into Barney Fife and Floyd the Barber than anybody really important because kings live in Mount Pilate. They don't hang out in barns on the edge of Mayberry RFD. So, of course, the Magi bump into Herod first. Now, here's where you might expect to find a king, right? Well, at least the first king in our story, anyway. But the contrast between these two kings, between Herod and Jesus, is pretty stark. I mean, just based on geography. Herod basks in the light of an important urban landscape in Jerusalem, while Jesus lies swaddled in the shadows of tiny, irrelevant Bethlehem. But Matthew doesn't want to stop the comparison there. He, he offers us a more humiliating contrast. When Herod hears about Jesus, Matthew says, Herod's frightened. But, but, but not only is the king freaked out by news of this baby, Matthew tells us that all of Jerusalem is having a meltdown right alongside him. Big, important King Herod lodged comfortably in big, important Jerusalem, where, at least according to Matthew, everybody's afraid of the little unimportant king who's doing nothing more than threatening, uh, uh, more threatening than having his huggies changed nine miles away in little unimportant Bethlehem. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? This Jesus story is hardly out of the introduction, and already the world is being turned on its head. Isaiah's the way I suspect that most people like to think of God's plans unfolding. With the light shining in the darkness and, and, and glory appearing and, and kings and rulers coming to pay homage. Mostly, I think, because that's the way we'd write the story if it were given to us to write. And there's nothing wrong with Isaiah's words of reassurance. I mean, especially to those who've been downtrodden and forgotten left rotting for so many years in refugee camps in Babylon. I mean, you know, people in those situations need a little triumph, need some light. But what about people like us? I mean, sure, we obviously have plenty of problems of our own, problems that plague us in the middle of the night, problems that keep us worried and full of anxiety. But by the standards of most of the rest of the world, even at our worst, we've been living in glory for most of our lives. It's, 
it's difficult to convince the rest of the world that we haven't been basking in the light all along. So, you know, maybe Isaiah's word isn't as helpful for us as Micah's. Because Micah's words remind us, we who've already seen so much of God's glory, that more often than not, God's work is done among the weak and the powerless, among those who've lived their lives in the wrong places, among all the wrong people. As Walter Brueggemann says, Micah is the voice of a peasant hope for the future, a voice that is not impressed with high towers and great arenas, banks and urban achievements. It anticipates a different future, as yet unaccomplished, that, that, that will organize the peasant land resistance to imperial threat. Micah anticipates a leader who will bring well-being to his people, not, not, not by great political ambition, but by attentiveness to the folks on the ground. And that's the difficult thing about this crazy story that Matthew gives us. I mean, we're used to kings who lay claim to rule through power, who, who, who take the world by the horns, who fashion a destiny that makes other rulers envious. And that's Herod all over, right? I mean, he's ruthless, willing to strip glory from the hands of those he's certain are undeserving and, and to keep it for himself, even if it costs the lives of children. Herod retains control by projecting an image of competence and power, despite an obvious lack of it. But Matthew holds up a mirror to Herod's projection of fearlessness. And in the reflection, we see him standing there naked in his own fear. And not fear of an invading army, not fear of some complex economic downturn, things that all politicians fear. Instead, Herod and those who've hitched their wagons to his star is afraid of a baby. A baby born to a single mom in a shack out behind the car wash. A baby who challenges every kingdom that institutionalizes injustice through violence and intimidation. A baby. Herod's afraid of a baby. But why? Because this baby will ultimately be the king that Herod so desperately wants himself to be, but never will be. Now let's just stop there for a second, because I know what we tend to do with stories like this, stories about a, a disadvantaged child with special gifts born to poor parents who, who, who one day rises above the odds to triumph over adversity. But, I mean, this isn't goodwill hunting or the queen's gambit, where the kid born on the wrong side of the tracks, faced with early trauma and heartache, discovers their special gifts and overcomes the lousy hand that life has dealt them. I mean, we like those kind of stories, don't we? I mean, drags to riches, the, the, the underdog who triumphs. But, but, but when you stop to think about it, those stories are only a more creative way of hanging on to Isaiah's glory. The light and the glory are delayed, but they're still there, right? So there's some initial adversity, but the hero prevails in the end. Jesus' story, on the other hand, starts in a barn in a pile of manure in Bethlehem 
and ends up on a pile of garbage in Jerusalem. I mean, the whole underdog trope doesn't work in Jesus' case because he winds up executed by the state in the name of royal insecurities. See, Jesus doesn't prevail in the end, at least in the way that we tend to think of prevailing, right? But what do I mean? Well, the way our culture views it, victory means overcoming the odds and coming out on top, where the lights shine and glory fills the air. But, see, Jesus transforms victory. He reshapes triumph. He goes up against the kingdoms of this world, but instead of battling on the king's violent terms, Jesus prevails by refusing to become the kind of ruler his followers misguidedly want him to be. One who needs the spotlight, who craves glory, one who needs to tell the world how smart and successful he is. And Jesus holds out to become the ruler that we all need, the one who's willing to die for a peace and justice that can never be won at the end of a sword. The way the rest of the world so often steals power, soaked to the elbows as it is in the blood of children and the humiliation of the powerless. When you sit Jesus next to Herod, and the way that we're socialized to see the comparison, Jesus has got to lose every time. Which is why it's so baffling that when Herod heard of Jesus, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. I mean, it's baffling because uh, Jesus isn't really much of a king, right? If you ask me, our worlds like Herod and the Magi, we're looking for Isaiah, but Matthew offers us up Micah. The world we live in is busy looking for a chief executive who's not afraid of unleashing power to retain control, even if it undermines everything a country says it stands for, or, 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 or if it costs the lives of innocent, the innocents and, and the dignity of the, the oppressed. But, but Matthew gives us a shepherd. But you see, that's the good news. Because a ruler born in a stable in a nowhere town, surrounded by filth and despair, understands just how the world is shaped. Understand what life looks like from the underside. A king like that has earned the right to sit next to George Floyd's children and Breonna Taylor's mother as they wait in vain for their father and daughter to come back to them. A king like that has earned the right to take his place among those who are afraid of that their unemployment checks won't be there when they need them. Among those who regularly hear how their poverty is somehow a moral failing, the result of spectacular but predictably bad choices. Among those who live in fear that their children will only know themselves as other because of the color of their skin or because their family is Muslim or because of their sexual orientation or gender identity or because they were born in Syria or Mexico or because they were born just on the wrong side of town. A king like that has earned the right to sit silently beside us in the dark nights of our own terror and grief, our own doubt and despair. A king who knows our failings and inadequacies, but who chooses to con continue to sit with us tonight, tomorrow morning, day after day, world without end.
That's your idea of a king? Yes. Thank God. Yes. Just the king we need. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.